0: and um, uh, where things began. Uh, So as as on the screen there is axiom, uh, a self-evident truth or an established principle. And so uh, with that, uh, we finished, just when I went to Albania, we finished our series on praise and worship where we spent most of the time in the book of Psalms. And uh, I'm still a bit in that mood, so I want to go back to Psalms there this morning, and I want you to turn to Psalm 146, Psalm 146. I'm going to read the whole Psalm, actually. Psalm 146. I'll just wait a sec for Nikki to get there. She's a little slow. She's pregnant. (laughs) Psalm 146. Verse 1 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I'll praise the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes or in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you, we honor you, and I just pray that some things here I'd share today would really touch and help people. I pray, Father, that you'd just take this month And I pray, Lord God, that your blessing, the very breath of your Holy Spirit would be upon this. And Jesus, we honor you, we thank you, we glorify you. And Lord, I just pray for your encouragement, for your hand upon every person here. Lord Jesus, that you would just speak into our very hearts, our very lives. And Lord, the power of your Holy Spirit would just touch every person here. You are the creator who brought all things into being. And Father, that you can touch and transform our very lives. Father, those things that seem impossible to move, that by your authority can be moved. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for those wonderful words that we just read. And I pray that would live now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. All right. Um, so this morning and this afternoon, I'm just going to share from Psalms. Uh, So I I want to uh, speak from this psalm and uh, carry on from where Mark Harwood was with us last week. And this word axiom is a word that means, as as was on the screen, a self-evident truth uh, or an established principle. But in the 21st century in Australia where we live, the overruling standard by which people approach life is the axiom of Darwinian evolution. That's, that's really the world we live in. Uh, at least that is so according to every school, every university, every media outlet in this country. That is the axiom that they've given as their plumb line to guide their world and life. Now, it's that axiom that I, I personally believe must be challenged and in its place reestablish what I believe is the true axiom or the the true established principle or self-evident truth that God is who He is, that He created this world, and that there is a God that we're all accountable to. That, I believe, is the true axiom of life. And so the ruling paradigm that we can uh, do this. Now, the moment I raise this, what happens, there's going to be some people, their responses go, oh, yeah, that's all right. That's your opinion, and they often, uh, you'll often hear these things. Oh, that's your opinion. It's classic postmodernism, where uh, everyone's truth is relative. Your opinion, and and but you're out of line with the consensus of the masses that hold differently to what we would hold, and so we sit as a church as a a, a minority. In, in a world that hold an axiom that's very different to the world that we live in. Now, it's because of that, I, I really wanted to come to Psalm 146 today. And and so, with this, uh, my, my actual Bible puts this, this heading, Put Not Your Trust in Princes. And then, uh, that's uh, in the ESV translation. So, with this here... Uh, if we come and obviously my my slides have been jumping all over the place, can we go back to uh, hang on i 've got to find where I am some I must have been going backwards. Can you maybe go back to the start uh julie um, otherwise i 'm going to get hopelessly lost go right yeah right back to the uh, you can actually just click on the first slide. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Okay, so thank thank you, Julian. I should take over there now. So okay, so this psalm is the last of five psalms in the book of Psalms. I don't know if you ever noticed, but Psalms is in uh, in five books. Uh, I call it the hand. Uh, you know, the beginning of the Bible opens with five books. I call it the hand. And so we have the hand of origins of all things, and there's always a balance with worship, uh, of, of the hand of worship. And so the book of Psalms is in five. And when you come to the end of the book of Psalms, there's five Psalms that all begin and end with this phrase, praise the Lord. Now, the word there, Lord, is the particular covenant name for God. And in actual fact, it's where uh, the original actually goes, Hallel, which is praise. Um, please behave. Hallel-lu-ya. Yah being that covenant name for God. hallel hall-lu-yah. And ya uh, Okay, so Hallel, praise, worship. And these Psalms all begin with hallelujah. They end with hallelujah. Uh, and so... Uh boy, is that going slow or what is it? Uh, I'm going to have to do something about that. But anyway, let me just come there. So each of these psalms begins and ends with that way. Now, I just want to just give a slight little outline of the way this is written. Uh, in outline, it just begins with praise the Lord, as I said, ends with praise the Lord. And in the Hebrew language, this is written as what they know as a chiasm or like an X. And, and it goes, praise the Lord, because God is our creator. And as our creator, he is then our sustainer, the one who upholds all things. And because of that reality and truth coming back down, God is our king. And then for that reason, we are all to praise the Lord. Now, with this, I, I, I want to just say a few things, too, by way of observation, just before we begin in the first here, I want you to notice that as the beginning of the psalm, three times it goes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now with this here, uh, you know, we can really see a foreshadowing of uh, the New Testament revelation of God revealed in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that begins this way, and then there is to be an act of a will in worship. Worship is not passive. Don't come to worship and go, oh, well, if I feel in the mood, I'll swing into things. No. The psalmist here says, you've got to speak to your soul. And you've got to go, soul, you're going to be at the center of the choir today. You've got to speak to your soul. And you've got to not be passive. I will praise the Lord. I make a decision. I'm going to put myself at the center of the choir but Sue off the stage and Nicky, I'm in there. I'm the center of the choir. Anyway, that's what it says. And then it says, I will sing. I will sing to the Lord. And so as such, you've got to command your soul. You know, your uh, emotions, your will, your feelings, uh, well, not your will, but your feelings and your emotions, they'll catch up behind. You put your will into action. Those things eventually catch up, a little bit like a locomotive. Your, your feelings, <laughs> they just roll with gravity. Sometimes you feel lousy. Anyway, no, I won't go do that. Anyone anyway, feel lousy? Um, is what happens, you know, it just goes to the lowest point of gravity. But you make your will. You put your will into action. You go, I will. Is what happens. They'll eventually follow. they got to. Your will is like a locomotive, it's going to drag things to follow behind. So you position yourself actively, not passively. And to do so then comes the most important decision that you are going to need to make. And this is where we spend our time today, Psalm 146, 3 and 4. And it says this, it says, Put not your trust in princes, princes, those whom men would put accolades upon. Those who are wealthy and a bit higher than others. Those who people revere and regard. It says, don't put your trust there. And it says there, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And then it says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans diminish. So don't go putting your trust in princes, those with giftings or wisdom, or or those who control and command pleasures or threats, because they cannot save. They can't really do something for your life. And so the psalmist instead here says, instead of trusting man, you need to put your trust in God. Don't trust humanism. Don't trust humanity. If your trust needs to be anchored in the axiom of this life, that God is, and He brought all things into being. And that's the very context, because there's no salvation in anyone else. Now, Psalm 118 uh, puts this very clearly too, verse 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge, better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take your refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, to trust in princes. And so with this here, uh, this next part of the psalm, uh, we can't see it in our English translation, but it doesn't play on the words in Hebrew. Hebrew, very poetic here. And and it goes, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And what the psalmist does, he takes Genesis 3.19 and he plays on words. And the first word he plays on is the word Adam. And uh, that is as in the Hebrew uh, here, Adam. But the word earth in Hebrew is Adama. So in actual fact, Adam means dusty. And so the earth, Adama, and so it plays on this fact that Adam sinned and he returned to the earth. He was but dust. And to the dust he would return. And so literally, this translation goes, do not rely on men of dust who return to dust. It's a little bit like I, I, I used to work in the Department of Agriculture and often be out in the Northwest Plains. And, and when you're out there, you, 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 sometimes there you encounter a willy-willy. You ever encounter one of those? And you get this wind, and sometimes they can really buffet you around. And, you know, you get this, and, and it pulls up the dust, and, and it hits you and buffets you, and then all of a sudden it's just gone. And all the dust just settles back onto the earth. That's mankind. Mankind comes up for a moment and exerts his influence. And sometimes people feel it can exert incredible influence. But then after a while, it's gone and just settles back into the dust. And the Scripture says it's a very, very poor soul who would trust in corrupt and dying mankind. Uh, A very poor place to put your trust. So the challenge is: Who are we going to trust? We're we going to trust the Lord, or are we going to trust mankind. So this issue is an authority issue. Whose authority are you and opinions are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the opinions of men, or are you going to trust God, who says to you that He does not lie? That is the real challenge for all of us. Now, here in Psalm one hundred and forty-six, five. 6. It then will go, blessed is he. Uh, If you do a study of the book of Psalms, uh, uh, 25 times it will go, blessed is he. The Amplified Bible uh, uh, puts it this way. It goes, exceedingly happy, exceedingly happy. And of course, Jesus, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he began with those very words, exceedingly happy or blessed is he. Uh, And so with this here, blessed is he, exceedingly happy. And this is the last of those in the book of Psalms. Exceedingly happy is the man, and then it continues here, is the man whose help is the God of Jacob. Jacob was the man that uh, the Lord picked up and who, do you remember his character and nature, uh, Mr. Twisted? He, he didn't have a straight bone in his body. And, uh, you know, he'd lie, he'd conniver, he can scheme. And uh, the only thing he had was a godly dad. And, you know, it says there, this man Jacob, God conquered him. And God converted him and made him a covenant man. In all that scheming, God conquered him. And he became God's man. He would eventually become Israel. And it says that Jacob in the end, began to trust God. Uh, Move his trust away from all his scheming just to trust God. Now, the God that he trusted was the God who made the heaven and the earth. So this is the thing. Are you going to trust man? Are you going to trust God? The God who created all things. who created the heavens. The heavens, what is transcendent of over and above all that we can even imagine or think. And we'll see some of that in the weeks to come. Or the earth. You know, this earth is a beautiful place. I I don't know. Yes, there's sadness in this world, but it's a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, one of the the days that we're going to do in these interactive services, just wide-eyed wonder. If you've never stood at wide-eyed wonder at creation, you haven't lived. You know, sometimes when you see the power, the power of the world that we live in. I'm a surfer, and I remember years ago uh, as a surfer, Margaret River. And, and I, I remember if you've ever been at Margaret River and it gets triple overhead, it puts the fear of God in your life. <laughs> and I remember one day at Margaret River as a young bloke, fit, strong, and charged charging everything I could get. And these sets came through in this one day. Man, I'd never seen the life in my life. And I paddled and I could see these mountains. And I remember I was only one of three guys that didn't get caught that day at Margaret River. And my heart was out here. And just for a look, I got on one of those mountains and I turned and I paddled to go, will I take it? And I remember paddling and all these guys sitting below me just going, ah! Oh, I tell you that I feel good at that moment. (laughs) But it was, oh, oh, if you've never done that, you haven't lived with creation. When you see the power, when you see the majesty. One time in America and I stood right up next to a tornado. And, you know, I I didn't even know what it was. I just saw this nice white cloud forming above me. And I'm looking at this bizarre sky, and I'm going, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Next thing I hear this car horn, woo! This guy going, get out of here, get out of here! And and I jumped out of the tractor, killed the tractor, jumped out of the tractor, hopped in his pickup, and as we sped off down the road, whoop, it puts its tail down. And then when you're up with power, you just go, whoa! Wide eyed wonder. <laughs> ah, anyway, we'll get there. But if God is the God who created the sea. Everything that is mysterious, deep, and dark that you don't understand. Such depths. Now, who are you going to trust? You're going to trust the God who uh, is the one who who then moves on in the psalm. Listen to this word. It goes uh, there, who keeps faith forever. He is absolutely faithful. In fact, the Bible says the Lord never changes. He is always faithful. He does not lie, the the Bible says. He is faithful. He is true. Yes, there's things in this world that are mysterious and dark, but our God is faithful. He's faithful to the promises. He's faithful to trust. And he says he won't let you down. Now, it's that, Lord, that the psalmist exhorts us to put our trust within. Don't put your trust in princes. You see, there's a reason we're not to put our trust in princes, as gifted or as grand as they may be. It's because they too live in a fallen world, and we're all subject to the fallen prince of this world. And there is a fallen prince the Scripture says, that stands behind this world. You know, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, and what's the word? The prince of the power of this air, of the spirit now at work. The word work there in the Greek, I often mention this word, is a Greek word called "anagayo." It's where we draw our world uh, energized from. Uh, And so uh, there is a prince of this world that's energizing humanity, and this prince uh, has a plan, and that plan is to object and to block all people in coming to put their trust in that Lord who says He is faithful and true. Now, if we go right back in the beginning of Scripture, and I want you to notice the very first words that prince ever said. You know, in Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, listen to this, did God actually say? Now, what he does is he never gives a straight lie. He gives always half-truths, but then he redefines what God has spoken. Now, the serpent questions the veracity of, of what God said, on the day that man would eat from the tree, he would die. But the question comes, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the question was loaded because the woman will then redefine what God spoke and said, "Uh, you are not even to look at the tree. But it was actually to eat from the tree. And so the truth of God's word is redefined. And so this prince of this world uh, always challenges the veracity and the truthfulness of what God has spoken. You may remember when Jesus was baptized. And Jesus is baptized, and, and a voice speaks from heaven. And the voice said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, if you know the culture, those are the words of a father at a son's bar mitzvah. And so what happens? He says, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And then immediately Jesus is led into the wilderness, and the tempter comes to him, and he says, if you are the son of God. Hang on, I think that's what God just said, wasn't it? Can you see? So he questions the veracity and the truthfulness of what God has spoken, and then he seeks to redefine it. And so Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered this way, It is what? It is written. Now, Jesus had a, a massive, massive emphasis upon Scripture. It's uh, very evident. Uh, it, it, like, if you come over and over through there, come on, please do what you're meant to do. Uh, Luke 24, 27. You know, on the Emmaus Road, Jesus said him, Uh, And beginning from Moses and all the prophets to those on the Emmaus road, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures things concerning himself. Uh, Down a little further, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, what you know as your Old Testament, must be fulfilled uh, if you are Islamic person, uh, this becomes uh, uh, the law or the uh, uh, the Psalms is a bar, and um, uh, they have all terms for this here. But basically, your Old Testament Jewish person always saw their Old Testament as the books of Moses, the first five books, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the the Scriptures, because Jesus knows. That when God speaks, He is truthful. Now, uh, you know, a very famous passage here is uh, two Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. And Paul tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. And so, with this here, the Scriptures is God's word, and the Scriptures claim to be God's truth. Now, it should be obvious, if you're a disciple of Jesus and a Christian, uh, then and if you put your trust in God and believe in His words, then you just accept that what God has spoken is true. Now, however, most of this generation do not. And most of this generation, when it comes to the Bible, believes, at least we know in surveys of this nation, that less than 7% of Australians believe that God's Word, or the Bible, is actually God's truth. Less than 7% of the nation. Uh, 70% though of Australians claim to belong to a denomination or a Christian body somewhere. Now can you see a little bit of a, uh, a clash of concepts is 7%, less than 7% of Australians believe that the Bible is God's Word, yet 70% on a form claim they belong to a denomination or a church or some Christian expression. So we have a bit of a a dichotomy uh, there where we have uh, them saying one thing on one hand and yet totally believing something on another. And most Australians actually believe the Bible is a book that is full of fable of myth and legend it might contains some useful moral chil- teaching that's good for children but is really just sort of something that can't be trusted now most Australians hold that position and I should know because I once held it myself and I was raised with that thinking and so I was raised in a secular a world and basically my world was a world where I trusted in princes I trusted in people of authority that what they were saying was true. I trusted that their authority was correct and their opinions were correct, particularly when it came to origins. So I was raised as an evolutionist. I was raised with that worldview. I didn't pray my father up in heaven. My father was up a tree. Uh, you know, I didn't believe that man was God's special creation. Uh, Auntie June was a baboon uh, from You by way of the zoo. Uh, it was my worldview. It was what I was raised within. And I know uh, where most Australians at because I was raised with exactly that worldview. Now, that worldview or that grand axiom, then became the plumb line by which all my peers, all my friends, all my world then aligned and, uh, and, and established their lives too. So there was no God to give account to. There was no responsibility in that regards. It's one, just live your life, and if you're a person like I was, just be a nice guy and have a good time, okay? Okay. Um, it's really probably where most of the people of this nation are as at, and I think uh, it's very accurate that description, particularly of my life. And so, for the first eighteen years of my life, that's exactly how I lived. Now, what happens there? If you understand, I didn't understand the time I lived in history. I didn't understand the shifts of thinking that occurred through time. I was just a young guy growing up as a teenager in the 1970s. You remember the 1970s, anyone here? <laughs> uh, some of you go, no, I can't even remember the 1980s. <laughs> Haley Ross goes, well, I don't even think I remember the 1990s. <laughs> and, uh, and so but that's, that's when I grow up. And, and, and so I didn't realize that actually Western culture, at that time, had actually been influenced by Christian worldview. You know, at great suffering and a great cost, there was a generation that established that God's axiom was correct, that God was truth and he brought all things into being, and they paid with it for their lives. For the first 300 years of the church history, they literally paid for it with their lives on that principle that what God has spoken is true. Then, eventually, that consensus eventually took the world. And finally, for the next 1,700 years, is, it was a generation of people that believed God's Word was true, that God created and brought all things into being, and that all mankind is accountable to God. Now, not all people were Christian. Not all people lived uh, a life that represented that. But by and large, the consensus of humanity was that thinking. Now, for 1,700 years, that thinking was established in Western culture particularly. Now, what happened? That began to be challenged um, there. in particularly what is known as the uh, 18th century uh, under... What is known as the Enlightenment. I don't I, I want to go into history, but where man said that reason was above any such thing as revelation. And it says that man's reasoning is supreme. So there were some good things that came from it. People rediscovered the arts. People rediscovered uh, literature. They rediscovered the sciences. Uh, There was a lot of good things that came. But basically, uh, it was a, a worldview that began to depart from the revelation of God. Mankind became more important than anything of what God had said or spoken. Now, there came a world where a group of people known as deism, people that believed, yes, God created, but he has nothing to do with this world. And amongst those deists, a man named James Hutton lived from 1726 to 1797. And he was a deist, and he rejected the revelation of God's Word. He rejected the Bible. He rejected that God brought all things into being by revelation. And he came up with a what is usually... Uh, summarized down in this statement, the present is the key to the past. All things have occurred exactly as they are since the dawn of time, and all past processes can be interpreted in the light of what's happening in the present. Uh, nearly everyone would say he became the father of modern geology. Now, he influenced greatly a man by the name of Charles Lyell, who was a lawyer, he was not a scientist. He was a lawyer. Have you ever noticed with lawyers, they argue real, real good. Uh, and, and I tell you, a lawyer can even, if they've got a losing case, can make it sound convincing. Because they're just good at arguing, and you've seen the ads on TV. If you've got a claim, come to us. <laughs> we'll get you some handouts. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the ads. And um, and, and and no offence to the lawyers in the room. I, I apologize. I roll it. You know, I said something there a while back, and I offended people, and I never mean to offend people. So we love lawyers. Can I just say that? But anyway, let me just come. He was a lawyer, and he lived 1797 to 1875. And what happens, he was a big fan of James Hutton and his deism. And he wrote a very influential book, far more influential than you realize, uh, which was uh, on geology. But he did so with this premise, and I want to give you the exact quote as it comes from him of why he did what he did. Listen to the quote. To free science of geology from who? From Moses. In other words, he wanted to divorce the scientific world of what had held consensus over science for millennia. And that was to divorce the science of geology from Moses, from those first five books of the Bible. Now, he wrote a book called The Principles of Geology. And in that book, uh, he had some very strong views. But basically, these were his three premises in the book to dismiss all biblical accounts of earth's history. So there was no Noah's flood. There was no creation where God brought all things into being. And so that was removed from his worldview. He then sought to prove that all geology could be interpreted by gradual processes. The present is the key to the past, taking James Hutton's few uh, views further. And then he makes much of geological features that he believed took great deals of time and rendered the biblical account false. Now, you might say at this point of time, well, what's this got to do with anything with us? Well, friends, it's got everything to do with where you are right at the moment of time because it was the principles of geology that this man was on the ship Beagle reading as he did that journey to the Galapagos Islands and From those views, as he read on geology, rejecting the biblical authority and the count of God, he too rejected the biblical count and authority of God. And he began to look through the glasses of these men. And this man wrote a book called The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. And he took the principles that James Hutton and Charles Lyell had approached with geology and he went, I'm going to apply this to biology and it came what to you know now as the theory of evolution. And this theory says there is no God that brought all things into being. is all origins of humanity have flowed or life have flown from natural processes and driven by a mechanism called the, the, uh, the law of natural selection. That's how all things came into being. And so this book was published in 1859. And this book was slow to be embraced. Many people do not know the ones who most strongly objected to that book were the scientists of the day, not the theologians. The theologians were the ones who were most open to embrace it in many places, but it was the scientists who struggled with that book. Now, that book gradually uh, took hold and became more influential in thinking. And so what happened there is this then gradually, through an event which I'm going to talk on this afternoon, became established in mainstream society and became the grand axiom that replaced the biblical axiom that God created all things and there is a God to be accountable to. Now, I never knew that. I was just raised in a generation, but my generation had thoroughly bought into this. And so I didn't believe there was any other way of life of what I was raised in. Now, you need to understand with this view, it is a very religious view. Now, Paul here is a scripture, a special religious education teacher. Now, let me tell you something about him. He is not allowed at all in a classroom to present anything on origins. He's allowed to do scripture, but never in a classroom because that is not allowed in our nation. And so with this here, let me just go uh, just a few views so you'll get a little bit of an idea. Michael Ruse uh, is a professor of philosophy and zoology. He's uh, what I call one of the, the cultural definers of our world. In other words, he's educating the masses. Listen to his words. Evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. No, that's not what the school teachers told me. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. I'm an ardent evolutionist and an ex Christian, and I must admit that in this one complaint, and Mr. Gish, who was a creationist back in the 70s and 80s, is but one of many to make it. The literalists are absolutely right, evolution is a what? A religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning because that's where its origins came from, men rejecting the revelation of God. This was true of evolution in the beginning. It is true of evolution still today. Therefore, evolution came into being as a kind of secular ideology, an explicit substitute for Christianity. But there is now only one view that is allowed to be taught in schools, universities, or any form of academia or allowed in the media. Okay, one view. Now, maybe you need to listen to another person, just so you don't think that Michael Ruse is alone. Uh, Professor Richard Lewontin, uh, professor uh, here of uh, geneticists, he's a self-proclaimed Marxist, uh, and he uh, is at the University of Florida. Uh, I want you to listen to his words. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the science side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is nothing it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the, th- of the phenomenal world. But on the contrary, we are forced by our prior adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, the materialism is absolute because we cannot allow a divine foot through the door. Now, friends, I was never taught that that was the view of many of the architects, that this was religion. I was always taught, this is rational, this is reason. This is science. And so by the time I did my high schooling, the time I was brought up, I unquestionably embraced everything that my princess taught me, without question. And, you know, is uh, there... Uh, no one of my friends, no peer ever questioned the grand axiom that we'd aligned ourselves to. It was just our reality, and we just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, although we didn't think much about the latter. And so that's how we lived our world and life. Okay? Now, can I just do a slight little diversion just for a moment? And uh, we're, we're doing okay for time, so you're doing okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to just do a slight digression. That's going to be very important for what I say next. But all of that reminded me somewhat of a children's story that I was very aware of of a young guy. And I was a big fan of Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, if anyone remembers, you know, The Little Mermaid, Thumbelina, and he was a Danish children's writer back at the beginning of the 19th century. Now, he wrote a, a, a particular uh, children's story called The Emperor's New Clothes. You possibly remember the story and i want to read wikipedia's little summary of this just so you'll capture this and then i want to just bring this home a little it's the story is about a vain emperor who cares nothing except wearing and displaying clothes and he hires two swindlers who promise him the finest best suit of clothes from a fabric invisible to anyone who is unfit for his position or hopelessly stupid Now the emperor's ministers cannot see the clothing themselves but they pretend that they can for fear of appearing unfit for their positions and the emperor does the same. Finally the swindlers report that the suit is finished. They mime dressing him and the emperor marches in procession before his subjects. The townsfolk play along with the pretense not wanting to appear unfit for their positions or stupid. Then a child in the crowd, too young to understand the desirability of keeping up the pretense, blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. And the cry is then taken up by some others. And the emperor cringes and suspects the, the assertion is true, but he continues on in the procession. Now, I want to read the, the end of the Emperor's New Clothes. I just want to read the very end of the little story of Hans Christian Andersen. And it's reported that Hans Christian Andersen put this into the publishers. And right before it was printed, he rushed in and says, I've got to change the story before you publish it. And he went and he changed the story to this ending. And I want to read this ending because this is what he intended. And I believe it nearly became prophetic for the generation that were going to come from him. So off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. Don't they fit him to perfection and see how long his train is? But no one would confess that he couldn't see anything at all, for that would either prove him unfit for the position or a fool and an imbecile. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success. But he hasn't got anything on, a little child cried out. Did you ever hear such an innocent prattle, said the child's father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. And a child says he hasn't got anything on. He hasn't got anything on, the whole town began to cry out at last. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right. But he thought, the procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever, as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. Now, how does that connect with me? As friends, I was raised in a generation that never questioned the axiom that they'd aligned themselves to. Can I just do this for you, just for a moment? This is what I was taught in school. Number one, Exhibit A, Peppered Moths, Bison area. And through uh, Industrial Pollution, Once white trees became darkened and then these moss sat on trees and the birds came and picked off the white moss that were exposed on the dark trees and then the Industrial Revolution reversed and then the process opened in reverse. There you go, natural selection in its full. Um, A lot of people don't know but natural selection was well and truly established principle before Charles Darwin ever came up with natural selection. It was recognised by creationists and it was always recognised as a fine-tuning principle But that was what I was given as Exhibit A, now known today as a complete fraud. Fraudulent science. Moss do not live on trees. They actually sit up under the canopies, under the leaves. They were conveniently pinned to the bark of the trees by well-meaning scientists who wanted to establish the principle that you think this is Exhibit A for natural selection and Darwinian evolution. Is now proven to be absolute fraudulent science, and a generation was deceived, and it's still in the textbooks today. I was taught this Haeckel's diagrams, and a German uh, uh, scientist uh, drew and, and drew the embryos, this top line of embryos, that showed that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, and I'm not speaking in tongues. That was this term is that uh, as embryo development, as an embryo develops, it goes through all the previous evolutionary stages of life. And those diagrams sat in the books for 50 years. is now completely fraudulent science. was 100% fraud, and these are the actual photos underneath. 100% fraud, but that was still in the textbooks when I was in school. This here had just been exposed and was removed from the textbooks just prior to me. Piltdown man that sat in the textbooks for 50 years. 100% complete fraud. Absolute fraudulent science. And the people who did that actually confessed on their deathbed of the fraud that deceived a generation in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. So-called Nebraska man. 100% complete fraud. So a lot of the science I was taught was fraudulent science. Not, not, not just wrong science, fraudulent to deceive us as a generation. I was taught this famous horse series, number two exhibit in the science books when I went to school. And this is what was said is that, you know, as we trace the fossils, we can get this lovely graduation of, of you know, uh, uh, many horses that developed and then developed three toes and then finally single toe. And, 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 and these lovely diagrams, now known to be absolutely false science, is because now horses have been discovered below even this line and they now know these creatures were hyraxes and weren't even horses at all. So it's absolute discredited science. But that's what I was taught. And I was taught things like this that are still in the textbooks to this day of this animal, which is now irrelevant science, is Archaeopteryx or Archaeopteryx, whichever way you want to pronounce this. And this is so-called the perfect missing link. The only problem with this perfect missing link is bird fossils are now discovered below the strata this was ever discovered in, so they know it's not a missing link. So it's a relevant science, but still in the textbooks to convince a generation today. Now, as I began to look at this, my life changed, not because I saw this in a textbook, but my life changed when I met Jesus Christ. And suddenly, I had a God who became real and actually moved and worked in my world. And then I went back and examined everything that I'd been taught. And I tell you, friends, I came away and I went, do not trust in princes or in mere mortal man. But blessed, exceedingly happy is he who trusts in his Lord. Now, with this here... Uh, this is why I highly recommend the book that Mark Harwood had last week, this one here called Evolution's Achilles Heels. Let me just summarize this very briefly for you, and we've got time here just to do this, but let me do this. Chapter 1 is natural selection. It was meant to be the engine that was driving the theory of evolution that I was taught implicitly is how everything came into being was once seen as the engine room to drive the theory of evolution. We now know of natural selection, it only ever reduces the gene pool. It reduces information. It's not a mechanism to increase information. Now, you must understand a bacteria has 500,000 codes in its genetics. You have 3 billion so where did the 2.5 billion genetic codes to produce you come from? Now, friends, you can't have something like this. You've got to have something that's creating that genetic pool and increasing this in your world. Now, we now know that natural selection can only fine-tune a created kind. It never can change a kind to another kind. It can only fine-tune and adapt, and it loses information in the process. It breaks things and creates no new features and it is blind. And there's a thing called chimera's box that we now know is natural selection is totally blind to and cannot actively select. So there is no mechanism. And if evolution has no mechanism, it's dead in the water. It's gone, friends. There is no mechanism. And if you want to argue about that, is you have got to come up with a way and a mechanism of how you can increase information, but there is none. So it's dead in the water. But never mind, we keep on the procession no matter the facts. Chapter two, I highly recommend this book, genetics. So you have three billion letter codes of information in you on 23 chromosomes. The bacteria has 500,000. Now, we now know bad mutations add up more quickly than the removal. So every generation of humanity has 100 new mutations. I'm sorry, baby. Uh, 100 new mutations a generation, which means that genetic load, we can even predict when humanity is going to cease on Earth because it's all going downhill. But I was taught it was all going uphill. And we now know that DNA is the most sophisticated language system that's ever been deciphered. Now who knows computers here? Computers work on base two and they work in linearly. Now, DNA doesn't. It's base four. Let me explain how it works. It works linearly. It works by section by section. In a 3D molecule, it works in 3D and it works over time. There is no language system that's ever been deciphered amongst men that is that complicated. And... Junk DNA is now known to be probably the greatest blunder in science because of evolutionary theory. It's now junked. So junk DNA is now junked because they now know it all codes. They just didn't understand how it worked. And we know that programming of this mechanism is so robust that even with loads of mistakes, it can still operate. But a computer program, one mistake will shut your whole program down. If you're like me, Bill Gates gets some adjectives every now and then. Anyone there? Okay, friends, chapter three, the origin of life. Now, you is now known to be so complicated you have to have a complete cell to even have the beginning of life. The law of abiogenesis, you know, that life can come out of non life. Louis Pasteur proved spontaneous generation is junk science, it's never been disproved. But this theory has got to come and say the opposite. And then Paul Davies, uh, one of the scientists used to be here in Australia, says it's the software of the living cell that is real mystery, not the hardware. But let me tell you, I studied the hardware, and the hardware is complicated. Okay? It's just impossible. Uh, chapter 4, the fossil record. Better sits burial under a global flood than, and by environment than anything by time and lack of intermediates. No explanation for Cambrian explosion, offset fossils, polished fossils. On and on it goes. Chapter 5, the geological record, better fits catastrophe exactly as the Bible speaks of. Explanation of fossilization, dead dinosaur fossil posture that's ubiquitous through the world. Explanation of fossil graveyards, C-14 in dinosaur tissue that supposedly died 65 million years ago. Come on, friends, think this through. Chapter 6, radiometric dating based on credible assumptions, but even diamonds, which are meant to be 3 billion billion years old, can be radiometrically dated, which means they're very young. And then Chapter 7, cosmology and, you know, the Big Bang. Uh, Well, the Big Bang has got to have a big fudge, it's got to have a big fuse and a big fudge. Let me explain. Big fuse, what caused the Big Bang, for a starter, because it's the atheist paradigm, the atheist axiom, how all things came into being. But it's got to have big fudge. Now, let me explain the big fudge. You've got to have dark matter, dark energy, and, and you've got to have inflation. Now, that means nothing to you when some of you guys go, turn off the science, man. Let's go back to theology. Well, let me just explain it. Dark, dark matter. of this universe must be dark matter to have a big bang. Uh, Dark energy? 75% of this universe is dark energy. What is dark matter, dark energy? No one knows because it's never been observed or never seen. But you've got to have it or we can't have the big bang. And then you have to have inflation is because you can't have a universe and a big bang without inflation. What's inflation? Um, Let the procession roll on. Because, friends, it is bankrupt. Now, chapter 8 then talks about morals and ethics. Now, can I just say, when you put this to the test, dear God, that I could have embraced what princes taught me and without question. And I want to challenge you, you need to question everything that comes and you need to come and trust in the Lord. Now, I will draw this now quickly to an end, but let me say this: is axioms. Ideas have consequences, and those consequences affect people's lives. Now, for you, you, you you live there, and you you don't see this. But friends, I've been twenty-seven times to the post-Soviet Union. I've stood in the graveyards. I stood and have looked at the graves of the Stalinist purge and also was there in 2002 when a riverbank undercut in Siberia and 30 bodies washed down the river, but yet there were thousands in under that river all with a bullet hole through the head that came from the Stalinist purge because ideas have consequences. And people who architect this are, in fact, when they're unleashed from a plumb line can do some quite bizarre things. Now, this might shock you, but in 100-year period from the year 1900 to the year 2000, more people were killed by evolutionary atheism in 100 years than every war from the time of Jesus Christ to now. Stalin, we don't even know how many he killed. Mao left him like a Sunday school child in comparison and single-handedly did the death of nearly 30 million people by famine. In a decision he made, because to him, they were irrelevant, society has the highest goal. Richard Dawkins, I don't know if anyone's read his book, The God Delusion. I did. And uh, I read the book, and there was one, a few statements I, I had to slightly smile about. One was this. Atheism has never caused the single death of a person in this world. That was in The God Delusion. And I went, hang on. I've been 27 times to the post-Soviet Union. Um, how do you say a statement like that? And when Dawkins was asked on this issue, Stalin killed people so he wasn't an atheist. Mao killed people so he wasn't an atheist. Pol Pot, who killed two and a half million Cambodians for the course of atheistic evolutionary theory, learned from the universities of Paris, also killed people, but they weren't real atheists because they killed people. Now, friends, it does make no sense. It's because that theory cause tragedy. Now Dawkins has quoted this way, I'm a passionate Darwinian when it comes to science, when it comes to explaining the world, but I'm a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to mor- morality and to politics. And that's interesting. You're passionate Darwinist, but it has consequences and then you don't want to be one. You hear that? Okay, so let me just leave this. This is why this psalm ends this way. And now we come to our conclusion. Well, firstly, I better say this I have no time for the compromise theories. Gap theory inserts millions of years between Genesis 1 and 2. Day-age theory that the days of Genesis are long periods of time. Uh, You know, as we got here, uh, literary framework uh, hypothesis only teaching moral, uh, spiritual teaching, not real teaching. Uh, you know, by a logos that the atheist story is true and Genesis is but a fable and myth or progressive creationist Hugh Ross uh, teaches the Big Bang is the truth and therefore that all origins are just fine-tuned and that's our belief for God. Now, the problem with all of those views, friends, let me just say, is they all take the atheist view and they go, we must compromise with it. But this is the thing you've got to do with all of those views. You've got to, firstly, you've got to deny the plain reading of Scripture And you've got to come and say, did God actually say, and we'll redefine the truth. All of them have got to do that. Number two is you've got to introduce death before the fall of humanity. So Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sin. Well, you've got to deny that. And then thirdly is you've got to contradict Jesus Christ on his teaching on origins and the Scripture. And in Mark 10.6, he just says, but from the beginning of creation... God made them what? So when did man begin? The beginning of creation. All those other views say, no, it didn't. We redefine it. Now, so let me come now to our end. Trust in man, not... uh, I'll put that around the other way. (laughs) Do not trust in man. Trust in the Lord. Let me just refer you to Psalm 146. Listen to this. I love these words. It just goes there. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You trust in man, friends, and this is what usually happens with man. He's mortal. In him is no salvation. And mankind is very, very unfaithful and will even lie to you to present his case. And men have got this great ability to press other people, to be insensitive to the hunger, as Mao was to 30 million Chinese, to bind his fellow man, to close the eyes of other people, to crush the weak, and loves unrighteousness and sinfulness, insensitive to strangers, crushes the orphan and widow, and upholds wickedness. A friend says, don't put your trust there. Come to God who is creator and saviour, who is absolutely faithful, who gives justice for the oppressed, food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, raises those who are bowed down, loves righteousness, protects strangers, supports orphans and widows, thwarts the way of the wicked. Who are you going to trust, friends? Now, all of those words there, here are Psalm 146, it's believed by theologians, are repicked picked up and quoted by Isaiah. This is how we end. Isaiah 61:1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It was those words that Jesus read in his first sermon when he went into Nazareth's synagogue, and he quoted those words, and he quoted those words that he is that good Lord of Psalm 146. And so 146 ends this way, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to generations. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. I will praise the Lord. I will sing, I make a choice, and I'm going to worship my God over and against the ways of men and I take my stand, even when things are mysterious and deep and I don't fully understand, I'm going to trust my God. And I'm going to stand there and I come to Jesus Christ who never, ever lets us down. And I will praise the Lord. is because this reason, you know, Jesus said, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me end with this. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You can trust him. You can absolutely put your trust in Jesus Christ. He is the one who created us. He's the one who saved us. And he's coming again. And I want us to stand and I want us to sing Hallelujah. And Angie, you get back up here and sing that song. That's that's, just a great song. And uh, wherever you are, I I do say please. I shouldn't say it like that, should I? (laughs) And friends, Jesus Christ is the same Lord who brings healing to the sick. The same Lord who brings freedom to those who have bowed down can restore the brokenhearted. If you're crushed in spirit, the same Jesus Christ can make you a whole person. Let's sing this song and then we'll just open up a prayer today and, and I, I think Jit uh, will carry on with this there in a little bit. But God bless you and let's sing and let's choose to worship our Lord. Amen. Amen.
1: It was finished on that day death was beaten all darkness was slain all his passion
0: ago I came over as a as a student after you know arming myself with all the knowledge I need to do to to get to do pharmacy to do medical science and I've been studying science all my life pretty much and then I, I was faced with this decision one day almost like a crossroad between choosing my way, or choosing Jesus. And you know how science, as I was growing up and learning and studying, teaching about evolution, teaching about animal changes, well, to be honest, up to that point of time, I never observed